Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Mirandi Rewo. Mirandi is the award-winning author of The Fish Girl, which took out Seizure's Viva La Novella Award, as well as a shortlisting for the Stella Prize. Mirandi also writes Victorian-era detective fiction as M.J. Tia, and she has a new novel out. It's called Stone Sky Gold Mountain. She'll be joining me to discuss it today. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and their ongoing connection to that land. Now, here on Final Draft, we remain committed to exploring the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, as featured on 2SER, whilst maintaining social distancing in this uh, very strange time. Uh, that means that I'm recording from home for a while, but I am going to keep bringing you the best quality show that I can. So, um, if you're loving the show and you're finding yourself uh, with lots more time to do some reading, why not share those reading adventures and the podcast with a friend? whilst also forgiving me occasionally for the audio. (laughs) Stone Sky Gold Mountain transports the reader to the Queensland goldfields of the mid to late 19th century. Siblings Ying and Lai Yu have left their homes in China and travelled to Australia to seek money to restore their family fortunes. Ying must disguise herself, passing as a boy, lest her gender see her taken advantage of and brutalised. Now, as a male, she discovers freedoms denied her as a woman, but also sees the restrictions that she lives under. When Ying and Lai Yu realise they cannot survive on the mere gold dust they're finding, they move to Maytown, the settlement established to furnish the gold fields. While in Maytown, Miriam and Sophie live on the outskirts. Miriam longs for her old life and bristles at the town's treatment of her as the maid of a sex worker. Join me as we discover Mirandi Rewo's Stone Sky Gold Mountain. My name is Andrew Popel. I am joined on the line via Skype by Mirandi Rewo. And Mirandi is your award-winning author of The Fish Girl, which took out Seizure's Viva La Novella Award, as well as a shortlisting for the Stella Prize. You've met Mirandi on the show previously, and today she is joining us with her new novel, Stone Sky, Gold Mountain. Mirandi, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me again. It is it is a pleasure, and I am... I think this is such an important time to be sharing books. And uh, you, you not only take us, you not only transport us through space, but also through time, as uh, Stone Sky Gold Mountain takes the reader to the Queensland goldfields of the mid-19th century or mid to late 19th century. Siblings Ying and Lai Yu have left their home in China and they've travelled to Australia to seek enough money to restore their family. In Maytown, Miriam and Sophie live on the outskirts, and Miriam longs for her old life and bristles at the town's treatment of her as the maid of a sex worker. Now, in Stone Sky Gold Mountain, you take images that I think may be superficially familiar to readers. I mean, I know that I, I was a, as a child, I studied the, the gold rush in scare quotes in primary school, but you widen the lens on this history and you reset the scene with identities that are too often excluded. And I wondered if we could start with a little bit of that history. Can you help us see more clearly what has too often been whitewashed from the past? Yeah, well, what I found when I originally um, thought of writing about the sort of the earlier Chinese in Australia, obviously I um, was thinking of the gold rush period and I did have um, quite a bit of, I did conduct quite a bit of research down in Victoria because that's where a lot of the stories come from. 
Um, but then I kind of wanted, because I'm a Queensland writer anyway, I did want to write about Queensland. And I thought also that the Victorian goldfields had been written about anyway. So um, I sort of worked my way up north with my research, you know, more further and further north. And eventually I um, came across Cooktown and the Palmer River gold rush. And what was fascinating to me was that in the area at the time there were say up to 20,000 Chinese people which was four or five times more than the white Australians there so I just um I find that just sort of mind-boggling anyway you know that there was such a you know such a rich um kind of culture at the time um of of just Chinese um diggers Chinese shopkeepers Chinese gardeners Chinese butchers that um, everyone, including the white people up there, um, sort of relied upon. So, um, and then um, I read about Maytown. So Maytown at the time was a really flourishing um, gold rush town. It's about um, a two-hour drive from, two to three-hour drive from um, Cooktown, and most of it's four-wheel drive. Um, so I think in actual fact, it took the Chinese, you know, months to walk across the terrain and sometimes they'd have to go back and get some, you know, more provisions and then double back again and it was just pretty tortuous. And Maytown itself, um, well, like I always say, it was, it, was, it was probably prominent for probably only five to ten years and then it was deserted again. But in that time, even in the early period, they had what I think shows you that it was flourishing was they had a lemonade factory, which I think is just astounding. Um, and many, many hotels and beer shanties and, you know, little, I guess, hostels and things um, and lots of shops that were um, run and hotels run by the Chinese. And But all you'll find there now... Uh, some some rocks along the side, some stones along the side of the street where they've tried to sort of pave it um, on one side, and you can you have to look carefully for them. There are plaques now that somebody I think in the eighties or nineties put there of of the um, with the names of the shopkeepers and where they were and the bakery and that sort of thing, mm. and the stumps from the post office. I, I believe it was the post office or the courthouse. The stumps are still there, but apart from that, there's not anything. Oh, and there's there's a bit of the oven left from the bakery. So apart from that, there's nothing there. Considering at the time it was it was big time, and I mean I think it even had like a local journalist that sort of thing. So um, I just I just found it really fascinating to find such presence, such a huge presence of China Chinese there. Um, that has been whitewashed out. We don't um, read about it. It hasn't. Re it's not really acknowledged. Um, and also, I guess what was of interest to me was was I guess that the you know the white settlers had been here not that long themselves, but but that they had um, such control, even though especially in that area there were more Chinese. So you can sort of maybe understand this fear of the yellow peril but but also i guess the arrogance of of keeping control even even with large numbers of chinese yeah those those population numbers are astounding um but i mean i've read a little bit of history in in boning up for this interview and, and heard suggestion that 
Chinese contact with mainland Australia had occurred prior to sort of European mm-hmm. invasion. Mm-hmm. But in Ling, and sorry, in Ying and Laiyue's stories, you really confront that that deep and that entrenched racism of English settlers in Australia against Chinese settlers. And it struck me that in the context of of a history that extends tens of thousands of years, these parallel histories of, of English and Chinese migration, they're practically contemporary. They practically start at the same time mm. in, the, in, the, in the broad span of tens of thousands of years. And I wondered, do you think we should be assessing these relationships in, in terms of our national identity? Um... I think I mean, one of the, I, I'm not sure if this answers your question, but I think huh. one of my points with my novel is that I think some things may not have changed. And um, so even when I write about, say, the racism or um, the sort of gatekeeping of who can come into Australia or, mm. or whatever, um, I'm not, I mean, things have obviously gotten better but a lot of things haven't changed as well, um, which I think I've tried to portray through this novel. Um, you, some, you know, some, well, obviously there's the the overt racism, but also um, I guess the unfairness, like at the time, like you said, mm-hmm. at the time um, the British and, well, other um, European nations and China were sort of seeking their fortunes in other areas. Um I think it's Bruce Pascoe who does point out, though, at the time, at the time, like, um, the British and that were going around taking over places, and this is probably going back to earlier, like you said, with the earlier Chinese um, contact with Australia. Um, I think he points out that whereas the British sort of, or the Dutch, whoever, sort of took over places, uh, the Chinese at the time would trade but not necessarily take over a place, you know. Um, Mm. So there's... There's, I think that's a bit interesting as well. But um, but also I think, yeah, just looking at the unfairness at the time of how uh, there, a few years after that there were um, letters written by prominent, say, Chinese businessmen saying how unf- to the government saying how unfair it was that um, British, British people had certain rights and um, had to be treated a certain way when they went into China and yet it was, wasn't was reciprocated, say, as far as taxes mm. and how they were treated. Um, so even at that time, people, you know, it's not like the Chinese didn't recognise the unfairness of, of the, the um, relationship. Mm. I guess that inheritance of, of those very unfair power structures plays out in another way in that Ying must also pass as a man to work and to survive in this very male, like, almost hyper-masculine world. Was this something that you found in your research? And, and I wondered how it, it also connected to, I guess, the power balance that we see at work in the novel. Yeah, no, I think originally, 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 when I wrote her, or when I wanted to write her, I, I actually just liked to write um, female characters and I wanted a female Chinese character um, because, you know, I'm Eurasian and I... I guess, you know, and I just wanted to write from a female point of view for one of the Chinese characters at least. Um, and then what happened is I, I actually was, the book was actually supposed to originally be just Ying and Merriam, um, but then I became quite interested in Lai Ye's journey as well. And um, so he, then he became a character as well. 
Um, now, I haven't actually myself come across any research on any women. There were there were a few Chinese women here. Probably, I mean, they both sides, Australia and China, did not encourage um, Chinese women to come here um, because, well, the Australians didn't want it because they didn't want them settling here, and the Chinese, I think, just wanted them to stay at home um, and have, I guess. Um, their pay sent back to the to the wives, but there were some women who came here um, in small numbers, which which became much more difficult come the white Australia policy. But no, I didn't find write um, read about any women who came to dig as such, mm. especially dressed up as a um, disguised as a a man. But I so I what I did do is I researched women in history who have done things disguised as men and it's fascinating it's fascinating how long or they got away with it or that they did get away with it or maybe people around them knew but mostly too they were in either on ships or military which I find really fascinating too that they managed to hide it for so long and so well um I just find that idea of women certain women sort of um striking out and choosing a different, um, I guess, a different life, you know, narrative by, by dressing up as man, um, quite fascinating. And also, I mean, it does highlight how women did have so few opportunities compared to men um, mm. at the time. And, and I think Ying does think on that. She does realise if she was with her family or if she was a girl again, just how much more restricted her life would be again, you know, and how hard that would be to go back to. Yeah, it very much, it very much also highlights that this is a story of outsiders. Ying is, is made an outsider doubly over. Uh, and yet also, again, I come back to this idea that the majority of the characters are, are what we might now classify as boat people. You know, if we were feeling a bit churlish, uh, they've, yes. they've all c- come within a few generations to the continent. And you show us that it's not simply when you came, but also how you came, power, status and class play and nationality play as an important role in who is accepted. Did you in any way have our modern history in mind as you wrote? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And everything. You mentioned boat people. Yeah. I I mean, I guess I just, the idea that. Even in my notes, I think I've scribbled somewhere. Oh my God, they're like boat people. (laughs) Um, Mm. And the whole um, human trafficking of the human bondage, um racism um yes there's a lot in there i mean even even the racist you know when they're sort of have the tiff in the shop um Mm. even that i actually took from footage there was particular footage of this sort of racist attack by some you know lads in i think a a pub um and i actually took a lot of like I actually watched that, I studied it to, just to get that whole build up and how it sort of stuck out, um, you know, like they're joking as such, you know, but actually it then becomes more menacing. And, and so I took that and that, that happened, what, five years ago. So um, not even five years ago. So, so yes, a lot of it is, is also a reflection on now. Does it become more powerful for you as you you turn it into a narrative, as you give characters voice? Because, I I mean, I I think I find whenever people want to talk about racism 
in Australia, they, they seem comfortable with the abstract idea that someone somewhere might be racist, but the idea that a character that you can put a name on, or in the case of contemporary history, a person that you might know or you yourself is racist, Australia, particularly white Australians, get very... They get very angry about that. We we can't possibly be sure someone in history might mm. once have been. Mm. <laughs> mm. Well, that's a that's a good point. I think I think there's two sides to that. I think you're right in that some people get offended and say they're not. But what I what I really wanted to show, I guess, were characters who who are like whether it's secretly or or overtly, because um, I think, I mean, I think people are like that, you know, nobody's sort of black and white when it comes to racism. Um, mm. But but also I think uh, due to some sort of, you know, leaders in the world, um, it's become unfortunately more acceptable to be racist, to insist you're not being racist, that you're actually just <laughs> stating mm. fact, but actually you're being racist, um, or that racism is okay. Um, I think there's that sort of danger at the moment as well. Yeah. But I certainly I certainly didn't want my characters to be uh, goody-goodies, I guess, because, um, well, I don't think people are... I, I just also I get a bit sick of say some stories or novels that are um, about people doing the right thing and maybe seeing mm. other people doing the wrong thing um, and and I mean at the at the really end of that spectrum there's then the you know the sort of white savior kind of um, narrative yeah. um, I kind of really wanted to. I guess write something I thought was maybe more realistic. That yeah. there's a lot of gray, there's a lot of grey area. Yeah. And I guess also if a if a if a narrative is crafted in such a way that it carves out a space for moral purity, it it gives the reader permission to think that that moral purity might exist in them. When we we all we all contain, uh, yes. I guess elements that we don't we don't like, and um, we need to we do need to confront like, that. Yeah, or maybe not even recognise or. Yeah. Yep. You recognise it secretly. <laughs> or, oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, but I think, I don't know, I think, and there are different aspects too of racism. Like sometimes, uh, I, you know, it could, I think there's different levels of um, nastiness behind it. Like mm. I think um, some some might even just be lighthearted, like you see sometimes in a comedy, but then, and then there's, I think there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum mm. of, of racism. Um, and somewhere along the line, we would sit somewhere along that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Stone Sky Gold Mountain is undoubtedly a novel of incredible characters and incredible interactions between those characters. But I, I just want to give a nod to the, the fact that it is also an intensely lyrical novel. And I was particularly struck by your evocation of the natural world. There's a lot of movement in this novel. Uh, Ying and Layer move from the goldfields to Maytown. Layer takes on a, an expedition and, and moves throughout the terrain. And I mean, I, it, was, it was wonderful. And the way you, you create nature, is this something that you needed to discover for yourself? And I wondered, did you have to research? Is this something that has changed in the interceding 150 some years? 
Um, the nature of the area that I wrote about. Yeah, and did you did you have to get out in it? Did you? Oh yeah, I definitely. Find... I definitely. Um, so a certain amount, I guess you you can get a certain amount of um, what it must have felt like from reading from the research of mm. um, historical texts of people of those first hand reports of like um, what it was like to you know slash your way through all that that um, spear grass and um, the heat and um, the the wounds and the illness you get from those long marches you know mm. um, so that that can be picked up from researching those those um, primary sources uh, then but I knew I couldn't start writing the novel until I'd been there I, I just mm. um, felt I just felt I couldn't I couldn't uh, sort of immerse myself in writing it until I was actually um, there so we did I did um, I got I was very lucky to get a grant from Griffith Review and and an um, Australian Council one um, so I took myself up, up there with my husband who happens to be um, well he's a geologist but he also does uh, forestry work like environmental work so he was very handy because he knows every tree you know every bird every leaf every everything everything so um we got so and and he can drive a four-wheel drive which i can't say so, so um so we went out there and um so that was incredibly sort of valuable to my to um writing this novel was actually and i took notes furiously while i was there um, yeah, so I do. I do remember one. There was one comment early on from somebody that there there are a lot of insects in my book, but, but there are a lot of insects out in the bush. And um, yeah, no, it was just it was really beautiful. And when you say maybe things have changed, I mean, like I said, there were. I mean, we saw maybe over that two hours of the four wheel driving, maybe a couple of. Um, um, camper vans, but they were earlier on because then they just couldn't have gotten further in. Um, I think there was there's one fellow who does live out there, um, but apart from that, you're totally isolated. So um, I think maybe maybe the um, maybe the obviously there were probably more more wildlife back in the day, but um, I certainly saw a lot. It was just really beautiful, and it was. It was, um, I usually don't love writing setting or I used to not love writing setting and I think it's because it is difficult. Um, so I put more effort into it. Um, but I really enjoyed writing. I really enjoyed writing the setting for this novel. Yeah. It really, it does show through and, and your comment on the insects is, is absolutely fabulous because I think there's nothing... <laughs> Nothing can take you more to a place than feeling the character having those bites and suffering that discomfort. I know. Oh, there's nothing like North Queensland. I used to live in Cairns and I remember when you first moved there, you're just attacked by midges and, you know, mozzies. And, and after a while you sort of become immune to it, I think. But at first it's just, and I mean, that's in a, in a house in town, you know. So I can't, I just can't even imagine what it must have been like months with just, your backpack of stuff, you know, or your, mm. your pail of stuff. Mm. Mm. Entomology aside, though, uh, in evoking this past, did it give you any perspective on our, on our present and perhaps on our future? Do you see 
the possibility for change in Australia on, on some of these issues that we've just been talking about? Well, I do. I'm always optimistic. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sort of downhearted or, or uh, pessimistic about, I do, I do remember years ago being a bit alarmed um, with the rise of a certain party. Um, and this is many years ago, just because, I mean, we've seen through history, sometimes it just takes this sort of uh, mix of, of um, you know, these sort of perfect moments to sort of, uh, you know, bind something together so it becomes um, horrible, like a war or a battle or whatever. Um, I do remember being a bit alarmed years ago um, that it could snowball um, but I think generally, you know what, it is hard to know in a pandemic, but generally I have hope. I think I think people um, are becoming more aware. You would hope even with, say, social media or, or fiction or non-fiction or whatever that more people uh, are becoming aware of other other ways of being, I guess. Yeah, I, I, and I am curious about that. And that's why I asked because we we do seem to be seeing little pockets of of kind of rising racism against Chinese mm. and and Asian uh, people who are Asian background, but yeah. also a global pandemic really starts to show us the really simple things that connect us, and we're you know we're forced to sit that, and contemplate right. them. Well, hopefully, like you said, it doesn't accentuate the racism. Mm. Um, and certainly, I guess um, the thing with racism that I've come to think just lately is what what annoys me about it is it just is so ridiculous in many ways, I guess, which is why I write about some of the things I write about, you know. And I wrote this short story um, and mostly it was based on some stuff that had happened to my son who's, um, I mean, he's only a quarter sort of Chinese-Indonesian but um, quite dark, and his friends, um, his good friends from school are African. And just some of the ways they were treated by bus drivers and other people is still appalling, appalling, and mm. still eye-opener to what people have to put up with. But also I think, I also think in some ways, even though I'm optimistic about the future, I think in some ways lately um, racism has become worse than say it was for me in the 80s mm. um, and maybe even the 90s. I think actually the last five, ten years, um, the, you know, it's quite shocking some of the things that happen now that didn't before, I think, you know. I think there was sort of a period after white Australia policy that was just um, maybe a bit better than it is even now. Yeah. Well, perhaps that's a, a note to strike for people to to go out and check out Stone Sky, Gold Mountain. It is it is Mirandi Ruo's latest novel, and uh, it has so, it has so much to say. I think in a time when we're we're very much restrained in our movement, you can do worse than to to travel through time and and place and and visit this uh, revelatory history of Australia. You're really showing us something that I think many of us will not have seen or read about before. Mirandi, thank you so much for taking the time thank for final so draft. Thank you. That's it for this great conversation with Mirandi Rewo. Mirandi's latest novel is Stone Sky Gold Mountain, and it's out now through University of Queensland Press.
Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. It's also recorded at my house at the moment because of social isolation measures that we should all be observing. Uh, the show is presented and produced by me. I am Andrew Popel. And if you want to keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we are, I am at Final Draft 2SER. Click subscribe in your podcast app. There is a great bonus episode this week featuring a conversation I had with Mirandi a few years back discussing her Victorian detective fiction. Plus, if you subscribe, you also get a new great conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.